2: There's a lot going on in the world of the Red Sox this week, so we're going to double up on the Fenway Rundown with a special Friday morning episode for you. The focus has been on the draft and the All-Star Game so far this week. We talked with Mike Romero, the first rounder, the other day uh, on Tuesday, and now a special roundtable to look back at the career, the legacy, uh, and now the induction of David Ortiz into the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Pleased to be joined with Sean McAdam, covers the Red Sox for Boston Sports Journal, Ian Brown covers the Red Sox for MLB.com. Both of those guys covered David Ortiz for his entire career. I didn't have the pleasure of doing so. I joined the beat in 2018. Uh, I've had very limited interactions with David Ortiz, who was my favorite player, one of my favorite players growing up. So I thought I'd call in a couple of the guys who knew him really well during his 15 years with the Red Sox. Those guys are going to talk about Their favorite memories covering Ortiz, their favorite moments with him, some behind the scenes stories you haven't heard. So really excited to welcome those guys before we all trek up to Cooperstown later in the night. So here is our roundtable on David Ortiz. We are joined by two, as I like to say, veterans of the Red Sox beat Sean McAdam of Boston Sports Journal, Ian Brown, uh, who has been with MLB.com since I was about five years old. And they uh, they have a lot of David Ortiz stories, which I think is fitting uh, for a special episode around table type thing as David Ortiz goes into the Hall of Fame this weekend. We'll all be up in Cooperstown covering it. It should be a really fun weekend. Um, We'll start with Sean, because Sean has uh, a little interesting recent history with Ortiz. Sean's new book, The Franchise, A Curated History of the Boston Red Sox, just came out. David Ortiz wrote the foreword for it. So, Sean, I mean, as you chronicled all of it, how important of a figure, how central of a figure was this guy?
0: Uh, It's impossible to overstate the importance of David Ortiz in, in modern Red Sox history. You know, I get asked this question a lot. I expect they'll get asked even more over the next few days as we get ready for his induction on Sunday. But to me, uh, you can say that David Ortiz changed the narrative of Red Sox history. Up until 2004, people worried, fans worried, how were they going to figure out to blow it this time? How is it going to slip through their hands How are they going to have the most cruel defeat handed to them, whether it be 67, 75, 78, 86, 03, all right there, all of it gets away and the Red Sox uh, walk away without that elusive title. When Ortiz shows up, he not only is part of the team that turns it around, but he's the most instrumental in helping to turn it around because rather than shrink from the occasion, he rises to it. And it got to the point where Red Sox fans expected something positive to happen when Ortiz was at the plate in October, instead of um, being fearful of how it was gonna get snatched away from them. And, And you can't pay a bigger compliment to a Red Sox player to say that his impact was to change expect the worst to expect the best and that's 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 ortiz's legacy for this franchise i think
2: well i remember you know as an eight-year-old kid in 2004 maybe i'll give a shout out to dave cotillo pessimistic fan He, he was the only one that didn't think that way he was just waiting for it to still you know go downhill somehow and still have another loss but uh after after enough times i think and i remember you know watching the the 2004 alcs in cooperstown and uh interesting to see that you know at least for me personally kind of go full circle this week um let's get the first impressions of this guy because I you know I was as big of a seven eight year old fan as you could have been obviously you guys were already on the beat and covering every move they were making you know Ian what did you know about him in Minnesota what did you do you remember covering the signing I mean do you remember it even kind of being a move that was on the radar any of that stuff
1: yeah no i remember he hit a home run off uh pedro uh, in the metrodome in august of 02. so that was really my first impression of him. i hadn't really thought a whole lot about him but anytime a guy took pedro deep you're like wow that, that's pretty impressive yeah but as far as the uh the signing went it really didn't even cause a ripple to tell you the truth i mean they signed him for was it one year uh, 1.25 billion dollars and i think there was more news when they when they traded for uh or signed jeremy giambi that winter and they, they just had a bunch of guys. Uh, they had five guys going for three spots with uh, Millar, Hillenbrand, uh, Giambi, um, Ortiz, and uh, I think I'm forgetting one other guy. But, yeah, they had so they had five guys for first base, third base, and DH. And Ortiz was kind of disgruntled, Chris, his first uh, month or two with the team. Uh, he wasn't playing a whole lot. He was probably playing even less than he was in Minnesota. And then uh, everything changed when they traded. Uh, you know, he asked for a trade. Theo Theo Epstein said, let, let me work on this. Let me see if we can fix this situation. He traded Shea Hillenbrand uh, to get a young, young Kim. And that uh, that trade wasn't a great trade uh, for Kim. He, he didn't do that great. But the big thing about that trade was it opened up a spot for David Ortiz and the rest is history because he became a monster as soon as he started playing every day. And uh, everyone always thinks of Ortiz in 04, but I think more of 03, because that was when it really started. Uh, he basically played half a season you know, every day there, and he finished fifth in the MVP race. So that kind of showed you uh, how how immediate his impact was. And as soon as he started hitting, you know, we saw the swag stuff, and he was just uh, always having fun with reporters. I remember, he was he was spraying us with cologne after, uh, you know, just just joking around stuff like that. He was uh, he was a lot of he was always a lot of fun to be around, especially kind of once he found his groove in Boston.
2: John, did it take him yeah. did it take him long to get that personality going?
0: Yeah, it, it did. I mean, as, as Ian correctly uh, chronicles, it was his signing was a complete non-event. Uh, it was one of those, you know, that they probably sent out a release on a Friday afternoon. And he was this ultimate Jag, just another guy, you know, a guy who had had a couple of 20 home run seasons with the Twins, but certainly not anybody who you thought was going to impact them in the way that he did, not even close. Uh, it, it barely caused a ripple. What we knew about him um, was that Pedro had pushed for him, and that Pedro had urged Theo. You know, hey, this guy's available. He's been DFA'd by the Twins. Uh, I think there's something there. But um, with all due respect to Pedro, uh, you know, at the time, I think a lot of people dismissed that as kind of Dominican brotherly love. It was a guy. Who, from his native country, and and Pedro was championing him and trying to get him an opportunity, but no one thought that, that he was gonna emerge and evolve into the kind of guy that he did, uh, until, as Ian said, uh, you know, the the playing time sorted itself out. Giambi kind of fell on his face, Hillenbrand got traded, and Ortiz took his opportunity and ran with it starting in, in June of V3
2: what point did you guys realize that this guy was like going to be a superstar or, you know, we're just going to, was not a fluke, I guess. Being first, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, we all saw it coming. We saw how good he was, but you know, it's really, it just, that O four four playoffs was really when he went from like, you know, a feared hitter to like, just like an otherworldly superstar. I mean, you think about the division series against the angels, um, he walks off the entire series. I mean, with one hit, he hits that walk-off homer into the into the monster seats to sweep the Angels, and the Federer the, the was just going crazy. And then you know they're they're gonna lose. Uh, they're gonna get swept by the Yankees. I mean, we we always talk about the Dave Roberts steal, um, but you know not only does the Bill Miller hit that tie that get lost in the shuffle, but. I mean, they're still uh, slugging it out. The next three innings, nobody can score. And Ortiz puts one into the bullpen there in the 12th mm-hmm. inning. And that, uh, I'll never forget. Uh, I'll never, you know, just the way a series changed with one swing. You could just kind of feel the momentum shift, even though it was still three to one. Uh, When Ortiz hit that ball, it was just like they kind of had to win a game like that to get back on the series. Like if they had won game four, like five to two or six to two, just some nondescript game, I don't think it would have carried over. The way he did that, then he wins the game the next day, Uh, 14th inning. He had about 10 or 11 pitch at bat against Esteban Loaiza and finally just fought one off in, in the center. And it just it went on and on, Chris. Like Game Seven in New York, I remember that um, at, uh, Johnny Damon got thrown out at the plate in the first inning, uh, trying to score on a Manny single. And you're like, oh, here we go again. The air's coming out. And Ortiz hit the next pitch, first inning of Game Seven, two-run homer. So that I mean, those, those that ALCS is really when he became a legend, and just kind of it just right. kind of carried on from there. Kind of never ended really after. That.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, it was the the October stage is is uh, is kind of coming out party, and even more, the fact that it was done against the Yankees. You know, if uh, this was a guy who was not going to be intimidated by the big moment, he wasn't going to shrink because they were playing the Yankees. And Ian makes a great point about the dramatic nature of Game Four and Ortiz walking it off and coming from behind in the ninth inning to tie it. Kind of a, a manifestation of, uh, of the, the Kevin Millar stuff that was being talked about before game four, where he's going around telling everyone, don't let us win tonight. Um, it, it was about Ortiz coming up big in that moment and, and sort of uh, coming through and, and uh, making true the scenario that Kevin Millar had brought up before the game, about don't let us win tonight, and all of a sudden that uh, that opening was made, and Ortiz was the guy who who produced it,
2: right? And you know, I think about obviously that. Not that I was covering it, I was actually credentialed with SB in, in 2013 as a high school senior. I think about that moment, and you know, Joaquin Benoit, the jumping cop, all those types of things. Um, to me and not being there for 03 and 04 not seeing it in person not seeing the end of his career in person a lot of those moments i think it would be hard to imagine something better fenway louder than in 2013 against the tigers in the alcs when you guys think of an ortiz signature moment and we'll, we'll open it up to story time in a minute but when you think of that ortiz signature moment sean first which is number one for you
0: yeah i i think that changed the whole alcs in game two um the red sox were in danger of falling behind two games to nothing and then having to go to detroit and win on the road uh they had been silenced by uh by scherzer uh they were doing nothing offensively and all of a sudden the grand slam ties it up and and it becomes a winnable series again and he put his stamp on so many postseason series we even go to all these postseason series uh whether it's the world series later that year in 2013 where Matheny stubbornly continues to pitch to him against all logic uh ortiz was kind of the fulcrum for any dramatic moment that the red sox experienced whether it was a comeback or putting a team away
1: yeah i think yeah i think the uh i still think the 04 homer was the biggest hit of his career um because look uh that changed the course of red sox history when they came back and won that series. But uh, I think the defining one was the one against the Tigers in 13 because it just showed you that if you had David Ortiz, it didn't matter what the situation was. If you had him on your team, uh, you were never out of a game. And uh, you're talking about 5-1, to one, bottom of the eighth, two outs. You're going to go down 2-0. You had just been shut out in game one. And you're going to go to Detroit facing Verlander in game three, down 2-0. And he hammers that pitch out, and uh, yeah, the place just went crazy. I mean, that might have been aside from both four, that might have been the loudest I ever heard. Place and kind of thirteen, like Ortiz was already a legend going into thirteen, mm-hmm. but that season kind of put him um, at another level because you know he had the whole speech thing, the marathon bombings, and you had the the hit against uh, uh, against Benoit, and then the World Series. I mean, that was a ridiculous performance. I mean, he hit. Uh, 688 in the world series and at this point he's 37 years old so going to that series you're like uh, could he still do this quite at this level I mean the end of the 12 season he was broken down with an Achilles problem he missed the final two months of that season so you didn't really know what you were going to get from him kind of going forward and he just kind of uh, reinvented himself those last four years of his career and it all started with 13 where I mean, that just to have control of a World Series. I've never seen a hitter in a World Series in a groove the way he was. And I was surprised that the Cardinals kept pitching to him. Um, I remember Wainwright immediately gave up a double to him down the line with first base opening in game five. And I think John Lester won that game. It was either two to one or three to two. And I was just kind of like, why are they pitching to him? And then in game six, they finally started walking him, but it was too late. The damage had already been done, and that was when Victorino... Uh, hit the double the 3 run double and that that was enough but yeah they just uh, you know metheny kept daring ortiz to beat him and he, and he kept doing it and,
0: and don't forget the speech in st louis in the dugout i mean uh you know not the speech that was the one after the marathon bombing but when he gathers everyone in the dugout and gives them a tongue lashing and and basically says, you know, we're we're letting this get away, what are we doing? These opportunities don't come along and it's caught on camera, you know, it, 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 that just added to the legacy, not only of his his impact could make on the field, um, but the the respect with which he was uh seen by everybody else in that team and his leadership quality just shown through on national tv in real time you're seeing him chewing out these guys and and you know uh kicking him in the ass and and turning around that series and that yeah, I, I think mean, is sorry. really go ahead Ian. sorry
1: yeah i was gonna say yeah and you saw chris sale do it five years later um with a lot more um f-bombs i think but yeah very similar and the way those two moments kind of, I uh, think, turned around World Series. But yeah, that, the Red Sox were kind of tight uh, early in that 13 World Series. I mean, they're down. They people forget they lost Game Three. Just a terrible loss. Um, a crazy interference play at the end on, on Will Middlebrooks, and they're down uh, two to one in the series. And that team, that 13 Red Sox, wasn't viewed as a like this juggernaut of a team. It was just kind of a team of Johnny Gomes and Daniel Nava and a bunch of role players who just kind of. Got it done. And then, yeah, for Ortiz to give that speech, you know, he said, you don't get this opportunity every day, guys. And he just kind of challenged them to all kind of seize the moment. And I think it was Johnny Gomes who hit a a huge three-run homer uh, shortly after that. And that was, again, a a moment for Ortiz that sort of changed the history of a series
2: and that's i think a great segue into you know david ortiz the person who you guys i always joke when i'm around you guys and and you know rob and alex and all these guys that have covered the team for a while that he knew he just kind of sees me as part of the pack and pretends that he knows me which i've heard is something that's kind of common for him so he'll go down the line oh it's good to see you give you guys a hug and then i get like the the handshake or the dap up which i'm never going to complain about as the kid who you know with my you know was was so young watching him so I always think that's hilarious and come to find out he actually did the same thing with his teammates he didn't really know who they were either but just pretended kind of throughout his career so um you know maybe he thinks that that we played together at some point I mean this is really where I open it up to you because I don't have those Ortiz stories I mean I've heard many of them over beers with you guys um but take take people behind the scenes. You know, we know about you know the, the larger than life character, some of the things. But, but what are some of your favorite? You know, there's definitely off color ones we can't tell, but yeah, family <laughs> appropriate if we can. David Ortiz, you know, behind the scenes stories. I'll, I'll start with you in there.
1: Yeah, just a couple things coming to mind. The name thing to me is really funny with him because, and you know, you say it that he he acts like uh, he probably knew you, he couldn't remember anybody's name, and I covered this guy um, starting in 2003. Um, I don't think he called me by name to like 2008 or 2009, but once he did, once he knows your name, it's like a toy to him and he like, won't stop saying it. He's so happy that there's a name that he knows. And will just like, Ian, Ian, it was fun- funny the way he pronounced my name. Um, but just, uh, just Sunday morning chats were great with him. You'd have about, you know, six or seven guys, especially on the road, just go over to his locker and just start... I'm shooting the breeze with him and just, you know, he would sit there forever. He wasn't a a, a big on pregame, you know, he didn't shag or anything. So he liked to kill time with the writers kind of uh, leading up to games. And I remember one time um, he was in a really bad slump. I think it was in uh, 2009, uh, he went like a hundred at bats without a homer, and he was like, "Hey guys, he's like, he's like, I can wipe my ass with a hundred at bats. He's like, a hundred at bats doesn't mean anything." So just the things like that that he would say that uh, nobody else would say uh, that—that's to me what, uh, what what kind of set him apart.
0: John. Yeah, I, uh, Ian referenced the end of the twenty twelve season where he's got the Achilles injury and doesn't play for the final two months, and I will never ever forget. Uh, a, a game at tropicana field it's the bobby valentine season it's brutal everyone just wants it to be over with and ortiz is holding court in the dugout at tropicana field while the rest of his teammates are taking batting practice and he's telling a story about wanting to get a pool house built at his manse in weston Massachusetts that's WESDON not western uh, the you know a very affluent suburb of Boston and all the uh, the 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 paperwork that has to be done and the political stuff that goes on and he sends his contractor to this town meeting to try to get approval because Weston's one of those hoity-toity towns and everyone's got to sign off on it. And if anybody within 10 miles objects to something that you're doing, it's a no-go. So he's trying to get this pool house built. And uh, the guy goes and his contractor is there and uh, there are a couple of neighbors who raise objection to this. No, we don't want this, it's gonna be too noisy, the construction, there's gonna be trucks in and out all summer, no, we object. And so he's denied the chance to build this pool house on his backyard. Well, uh, fast forward a couple of weeks later, it's like a 4th of July the Red Sox. I think maybe he was injured and was home for the day and they have a pool party and they invite a bunch of neighbors. And wouldn't you know it the contractor shows up turns around the corner and sees some people in the pool and so ortiz is telling the story about the contractor saying uh mr ortiz uh can i talk to you for a second and ortiz is doing all the voices of these people and the contractor pulls him around the corner and says uh uh mr ortiz i don't know how to tell you this uh, but those people in your pool right now? And Ortiz says, yeah. He says, those are the people at the town meeting. Those are the people who said not. They're the ones who said not. And this is Ortiz in his still somewhat fractured English recounting the town meeting. And the people who are in the pool are the ones who voice the objection to the pool house being built. Well, now David is fit to be tied. You sure? You sure those the people? Miss Ortiz, I was there. I remember these people. They're the ones who said not. So Ortiz says, okay, and kind of recounts casually going back to the pool and leaning over. And they're friends of his daughter and neighbors are having a great time playing volleyball, soaking up the 4th of July sunshine in Ortiz's pool. So I leaned over and I said, Everybody having a good time here? And they all said, oh yeah, we're having a great time, David. And then he leaned them a little closer and said, well, then get the F out of my pool right now. And it, and it was just this unbelievable performance art. The story took about 20 minutes to tell. There is much I can't repeat in terms of his language. But I, to this day, it's a running joke in my family to use the phrase "they're the ones who said not," because that was the phrase that David kept using in recounting his battle with his neighbors, unknowingly enjoying his pool while having shut down his bid to build the pool house in the backyard. And he, he was he was hilarious. You know, he could tell these stories. He could he could hold the room in the palm of his hand with his anecdotes and his his sometimes broken english and 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 free use of expletives yeah. but it was one of the funniest stories i ever heard anybody tell
1: yeah no nobody enjoys uh, the the f-bomb or the the english swear <laughs> words more than, than david ortiz I yeah he know
0: he knew right where to place them for dramatic effect yeah
1: it's unbelievable to me that he's doing all the for fox now uh, and he had people in stitches the other night at the all-star game but um just that he's able to censor himself because yeah. you know the David Ortiz, I know he can't go uh, 30 seconds without without uh, saying a swear.
0: Yep.
2: I mean the, the, those things, the, those stories, right? And like the what you guys have told about just dealing with him as a player in the clubhouse, we deal with all different types of personalities. He seems like he was one of the best ever. I mean, this whole big poppy, this whole larger than life guy. I mean, none of that's BS, right? Like this is he's he's as genuine as legit as it gets.
0: Yeah, outgoing, larger than life, uh, revered by his teammates, popular with opponents, uh, umpire. I mean, you know, there wasn't anybody who didn't like David. He he did have this larger than life appeal. He was a great storyteller. He had a flair for the dramatic on and off the field. Uh, You know, he's the kind of guy that was a joy to cover because he always made it interesting, whether he did it with his bat or with a quote after or before a game
1: yeah and like when i first knew him in uh, 2003 i mean he was kind of like we said he was kind of like a nobody but if he knew you like you knew sean and i and a couple of the other guys if he knew you from the beginning like he never changed like he became this larger than life star but uh when if he knew you when he always treated you the, the same like it's just that's impressive because you see some stars they get you know they really get to be like big poppy they get at that level like he was and they just got out Uh, forget what they came from I don't feel like he ever changed and the other thing that amazes me about him is he can talk to any kind of person Um, he can talk to uh, a politician he can talk to you know a a grounds crew worker he can talk to like a security guy around the ballpark and he's like equally comfortable talking to whoever uh, he has talked to and uh, there's, there's no kind of person that makes him uncomfortable and I think that's rare we all have people that we're sort of Uh, more comfortable talking to than others but he's he's different in that way and i have seen very few people like that like him who he can just um no matter who he's talking to he could talk to um barack obama you know we saw him take the selfie with obama at the white house he could talk to him right now like he was talking to me or sean and that to me is uh you know kind of unbelievable
0: yeah, the, and, and the thing that Ian talked about with your name is absolutely dead on correct. He would forget it for months at a time, and then he'd hear it, and then it became like a mnemonic for him to say it as many times as he possibly could over the next day or two. So it'd be, Sean, how you doing, Sean? Hey, Sean, come over here, Sean. I gotta tell you a story, Sean. It was like he was trying to teach himself to remember your name. And then a week later, You were back to being man or dude or whatever. And then a couple months later, he'd remember what it was and and use it like he was being paid to use it. And the other thing that I would point out was in this key is in keeping with Ian, you know, just being the guy being a joy to cover. He never big timed us. It wasn't like, oh, the national guys are here, you know, Buster Olney's here, Ken Rosenthal's here. I got to go talk to them and never mind the guys who were around us every day. Uh, he was, I, I think that there was a trust that got built up with us on a day-to-day basis, and, you know, being in some meaningless game in Kansas City in July, I, you know, through there talking to him. And so uh, when it came time for the postseason or a big national game, it wasn't, he didn't throw you aside because there was somebody from the New York Times or ESPN to go impress. We were the guys he was comfortable with because he had spent so much time with us. All right
2: and you know all that stuff makes me really look forward to the speech we will all see on sunday quickly from both of you what are you most looking forward to this weekend in cooperstown Uh, sean we'll start with you
0: yeah the speech uh you know thankfully it doesn't appear it's going to be quite as hot out there as it is in in uh in massachusetts this week uh which is a good thing because i don't think david is going to be limited to you know three and a half minutes here he's going to let it fly this is his time he'll have something dramatic up his sleeve he'll have some story that none of us have ever heard before uh he'll have some revelation whatever it is it will be entertaining and riveting and uh i i, I can't wait
1: yeah, the thing that sticks out to me about ortiz when it comes to speeches and stuff like that is i think he thinks on his feet a lot and we saw that in the boston strong speech he didn't he didn't script that ahead of time that he was going to say that. And I'm sure the same thing with the World Series speech that Sean talked about. So I'm curious to see how much of this on Sunday is going to be scripted and how much, he's just going to say what he feels. And I think there's a good chance yep. that a lot of what he says is just going to be, uh, say what he feels in that moment. And he's not going to, um, you know, he's not going to just kind of do some pre-scripted thing.
2: So you're, you're both saying that he hasn't written any of it yet, right?
0: I'd say, that's a, I'd say that's a safe bet, or if he has, he's going to discard 80% of it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, that's something to look forward to. Before we go, Ashan, um, I know you're doing the media rounds right now for the book, so we'll let you plug that.
0: Yep, new book uh, right here, The Franchise, A Curated History of the Red Sox with a forward from David Ortiz. Uh, that was great for promotion and great for publicity for the book um it's a uh it's a look at um that mostly emphasizes uh, the more modern era of the red sox from say Yaz forward i know modern is a is a uh, applicable term only to maybe me and ian uh chris believes anything that happened in red sox history before he started covering his ancient history and not terrible. Verbly relevant. That's not necessarily true, uh, but there's a lot of David Ortiz in that book and not just the forward because he plays such a big role in the four, in three of the four championships and helping to change the narrative uh, of the team. So available at uh, your local bookstore, Barnes and Noble and Amazon. Uh, if you're a Red Sox fan, I think you'll enjoy it and maybe learn some things you didn't know.
2: That sounds great. And Ian, Ian has a Dice K book, so when Dice K gets into the Hall of Fame, uh, we will, you'll, you'll get to plug it.
1: No, I did write a book about 2004 with a lot of uh Dave T's in there, and uh, ironically, he wrote the forward for that book too. So I guess he, um, you know, he he's he's big in the uh, forwards sort of, uh, <laughs> circuit.
2: Yeah, we should have him. We have him pre-tape the intro for the Fenway Rundown. That's <laughs> sure, that's, <yeah. laughs> that's Sean McAdam and Ian Brown, and the three of us uh, will be in Cooperstown this weekend. Should be a very fun weekend, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks.